this has been a debate that's been going on for a while. It's like, okay, AI is here, AI is doing, you know, some pretty amazing things. And is it going to replace people? Well, and that's to some degree, yes, it will. It'll replace musicians, it'll replace replace engineers, but not totally. So it's a good thing. I in the studio, I love AI driven plugins because it makes everything go faster. See, if I don't have to spend an extra hour in the studio, I love it. You know, why should I say no to that? Again, anything that makes things better for you, easier to do, whatever, any advantages that you can get, you should take. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm going to share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're going to show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, so I'm excited to be here today with Bobby Owinski. So Bobby is a, a friend of mine. He actually just had me on his podcast maybe about a week ago, so we're, we're coming back and we're kind of on the flip flipped ends of the, the table now. But uh, Bobby's awesome. He's a best-selling author in the music industry with 24 books, ranging from the Mixing Engineer's Handbook to Social Media Promotion for Musicians and the Music Business Advice book. He's been, uh, he's been featured on CNN and ABC News as a music branding and audio expert. More recently, has produced and mixed an album that appeared at number two on the Billboard Blues charts. And he, like I mentioned, he has a podcast of his own called The Inner Circle Podcast. That's in its ninth year now with over 400 episodes focused on the music industry. So I'm not going to lie, coming on to this, I was like, man, you know, Bobby is like, you know, you have a ton of experience. And on the flip end of the, the table, um, really amazing, amazing interviewer. So it's kind of cool to have you on the podcast here as well. So thank you for taking the time to be here today. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So today we were just having a discussion about really what we want to focus on in terms of the conversation. And with Bobby in particular, you know, I think he's someone that has a lot of like he has really like roots in the music industry and he has a lot of experience. He's been here, you know, for you know, his 400th episode. And um, I think it would be really interesting to kind of dive into the transformation in terms of the music industry in the past you know, really the past 20 years, especially things have just changed so, so much and they're continuing to evolve and continue to change on a, um, such a quick basis that, um, it'd be great to hear his perspective on some of these transformations that, that he's seen happen firsthand and where we kind of see the music industry going nowadays. So, uh, Bobby, before we get started, maybe, um, for anyone who this is their first time meeting you for the first time, could you maybe share a little bit about your story and how, how you got started here? Well, I started as a musician and, uh, I still am, but uh, less so. I, I was playing like four or five nights a week when I was still in high school. You could do that back then because there was just so many venues to play. And um, eventually um, got a, a gig with the best band in the area and we went on to tour around and did some albums where I found <laughs> the first time in a big major studio, I found how mediocre of a player I was. It was a real shock. So that prompted me, and also being around the studio, I really wanted to become a producer, and I went to Berklee College of Music to study arranging, which I thought would be a good idea. It was from one standpoint, not from another, but uh, about oh, three, four semesters in, they asked me to be an instructor there. 
And uh, the reason why was I had a degree in electronics, and I also had studio experience because I was doing all the demos for this record company we were signed, uh, we were signed with, and uh, I knew more than most of the people there. So I became a teacher there where I, I was a student and a teacher for a while, which does not work, I can tell you. So uh, then I just stayed as a teacher. And I was, uh, I was going along okay. And then one day I walked into the teacher's lounge and I heard someone complain, oh, this place is for rookies or has-beens. <laughs> and it like, hit me right between the eyes. I don't want to be either of those. So I quit and I packed up and moved to California. Mostly because it was warm, <laughs> but there's lots of opportunities. And when I came to California, I was just like everybody else. I started, you know, sleeping on people's couches with no money and just taking any gig. So I had some reasonable engineering chops. So I was playing in bands. I was recording bands. I was recording commercials. I was recording uh, movie soundtracks and you know just about anything, you know, to keep going. And uh, eventually, a turning point, and it just goes to show you, sometimes the smallest thing can turn into something really big in your life. I was uh, on tour, and the bass player came on the bus and said, I just got a job writing for the music paper. Now, music paper was a really big music paper that came out every week in the New York area, New York City area. And it had all the gigs, it had everything about music. It was really fantastic. But I thought, you know, if he could do that, so can I. So I put out some feelers and got a job writing for a mix magazine. One article, which I just came across recently, was totally horrible, <laughs> very embarrassing. But anyway, uh, it led to kind of a second side career as a writer. The next thing I know, I was writing for like a dozen music magazines. EQ, Engineer Producer, um, uh, Grammy Magazine, uh, Billboard, you name it. But I was still recording and I was still playing. And, and actually, I was um, playing quite a lot. And uh, I was not totally happy doing it, especially being on the road. But what ended up happening was... I was not a particularly good mixing engineer. I was a good recording engineer, but I wasn't good at mixing. And I thought, you know, if I feel like this, I bet there's a lot of other people that really want to learn. So I happened to know all of the best guys. They were all guys at the time, but all the best people that were mixers, best in the world, you know, from writing articles already and, you know, from being in the studio and rubbing elbows. So... I went to them and I asked them how they did it, and they told me. And it resulted in me getting a lot better, first of all, but it also became my first book, The Mixing Engineer's Handbook. There was no book on mixing. There was zero at the time. As a matter of fact, everybody said, you couldn't do it, it's too subjective. But I managed to do it, and it became a hit. And, and you know, I suffer from the same thing every writer does. You write a book, and the first thing you do is say, I will never do that again. <laughs> Too many brain cells die along the way. But uh, my publisher is very persistent, and it came a second book, Recording Engineer's Handbook, and the Mastering Engineer's Handbook, and they kept on coming after that, and they, kept, they kept on getting easier for me to do. So that became like a, a second career, one totally unexpected, 
but one I really enjoy until this day. I, I really enjoy it and, you know, still doing it, still releasing books. And then from that came from, you know, some online courses as well, because uh, after a while it's like, well, you know, I can write a few more books, but I, I won't necessarily make that much more money. So <laughs> maybe a way to, to uh, you know, make a b bigger impact on people and to actually show them you know, physically, the things that I've learned, you know, let's try some online courses. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell, where, you know, I've been in various parts of the music business throughout my life, and I still dabble in all of them, you know, just like everybody else being a hybrid. Cool. Man, 24, <clears throat> 24 books. I mean, I have aspirations to someday write a book, but like 24 books is a whole new mountain. That's well, it's, awesome. It's actually more than that, Michael, it, because uh -huh. I've done it more than 50 times because a lot of them are on the fourth and fifth edition. Mm. And, you know, some are, I, I've written three books that are outside of the music business as well that aren't in those 24. So I've gone through this a lot. I'm, I'm pretty good at it now. You should write a book about how to write books. <laughs> Great course. On, <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Man, that's that's super cool. And uh, you know, one thing that kind of sticks out about your story too that I feel like hopefully is inspiring to um, anyone who's listening to this right now is around your perspective around how you learned to become an amazing mixer. You know, I mean, you just, what, recently uh, produced a mix an album that appeared at number two on Billboard Blues Chart. Right. So that's, I mean, that doesn't just happen, right? Like you have to have the base amount of skills to be able to do that. And the way that you mentioned that, you know, you started out and like anyone starts out as something new, you didn't really have this, the skill set or the experience to, you know, to be a great mixer, but you, you learned by finding and connecting and building relationships and interviewing the people who had that experience or had that knowledge. And it seems like that's, a common pattern that like you see with a lot of people who kind of rise up in, in their field is that you know, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. Like they did what you did, right? Like they found, they actively sought out or they happened to get lucky enough to be mentored by someone else who had you know already invested 10,000 hours plus into their craft and were able to kind of learn that, interview them and kind of actively take on that new skill. And I think, yeah, the same thing applies for all musicians too. Like if you want to raise, be, become like the top of your game, then go find and connect with five other people who are at like the top of their game and interview them and learn from them and just absorb, you know, their experience. Uh, super cool. So uh, one next question for you. At this point, you know, you have a ton of experience um, connecting with, you know, artists and different different levels of their, their careers and both from like the mixing engineering side and also just from like the music business side and, you know, building a successful career. What are some of the biggest, you know, challenges or struggles that you see musicians facing when they first come to you when it, when it comes to like the, the new music business? Well, first of all, I don't look back nostalgically on the old business. Uh, honestly, the way it's always been difficult. So it's no easier difficult today than it's ever been. It's just different in, in the way that, you know, you do things. Back then, you were kind of relegated to being in a band. Today, you don't have to. You can do it completely on your own. And I guarantee everybody that was in a band back there back then would be doing it on their own in their own home studio today because that's what we all wanted to do is express ourselves so that was a big 
uh, a big difference, but really, you know, you tried to do your own music, you tried to get a record deal, a record deal was much more important back then than it is now. You know, I think one of the things that never gets brought up, though, is we talk about 10,000 hours. There were so many places to gig back then in the 70s, 80s even, or the beginning of the 80s, that you got your 10,000 hours on stage. You got really good with an audience. And if you're playing four nights a week and sometimes six, seven nights, I, I remember I, the one band I played with, we did 37 nights in a row. We were begging the manager to not book us for a while. And, and there were one-nighters. So, it, you know, it was really hard. And, but you could do that back then, so you got really good. And what changed everything was, and, and first of all, understand the economics of all this. First, the drinking age is 21 for the longest time. When most states brought it down to 18, all of a sudden there was all these new drinkers. And they wanted to go someplace and party, so now all these new clubs opened up. And they needed entertainment, so they brought in bands. That's why there were just an unlimited, um, you know, supply of venues that you could play at and, and get good. Then, and it was also a great farm team because sooner or later you got good at that and you moved on, you moved up, if you're any good anyway. But what ended up happening was the drinking and driving laws that came about. Now, there's a good reason for them, but all of a sudden, it was much more difficult for to be able to drink. And then the states brought the, the age limit up to 21 again. And as a result, all of these clubs started to close. And the music business changed dramatically at that point. Now, it coincides with MTV. It coincides with um, CDs coming out. So that's sometimes overlooked because, again, there are bigger events that were happening economically in the music business. But that was big because it was a lot of where people learned how to do things that suddenly that was gone. So now in order today, in order to do something similar, yes, there's plenty of clubs, you have to travel a lot more to do it. And you're paying the play in many places or you're getting you know this very well, you're not making any money at all. Where back then we we get paid all the time. I never paid to play ever ever. I was making more money than most people in high school just from playing. So uh, again, it was a different time and a different way to do things. Now today, if if you look at everything the way it is for a, a new musician just starting, it's easier because and it's easier from the standpoint that. You don't have to join a band if you don't want to. Joining a band is a pain because there's, as you well know, there's personalities you have to deal with. There's just the fact that it takes you six months at least to get together to play, just so it sounds good. And even on vocals, if you have strong vocals, it'll take you six months until the blend is there. And this is doing it all the time. So now you don't have to do that. So why would anybody even choose to be in a band when you can stay at home and do everything yourself? And not only that, then there's all there's the different ways that you can distribute 
your music. You can get it out there without any problem at all, and it doesn't even cost you a lot of money. So that's the good part. But the bad part is there's increased competition. Everybody can do it, so everybody does. So now on your shoulders is all the marketing that you have to do that no one ever thought of back then. We, you know, the record label did it all. So as you can see, there, there's good and bad in each side. It's, it's not any harder. It's not any easier. Some parts are, but then there are other parts that are more difficult. So, you know, again, I don't look back with any kind of nostalgia except for the, the fun of it, really. But, you know, I can't look back and say, oh, it was easier then or it was harder then or whatever. Yeah, it just was. All right, let's take a quick break from the podcast so I can tell you about a free special offer that we're doing right now exclusively for our podcast listeners. So if you get a ton of value from the show, but you want to take your music career to the next level, connect with a community of driven musicians and connect with the music mentors directly that we have on this podcast, or if you just want to know the best way to market your music and grow an audience right now, then this is going to be perfect for you. So right now we're offering a free two-week trial to our music mentor coaching program. And if you sign up in the show notes below, you're gonna get access to our entire Music Mentor content vault for free. The vault's organized into four different content pillars. The first being the music, then the artist, the fans, and last but not least, the business. When you sign up, you'll unlock our best in-depth masterclasses from a network of world-class musicians and industry experts on the most cutting-edge strategies right now for growing your music business. On top of that, you'll get access to our weekly live masterminds where our highest level modern musician coaches teach you exactly what they're doing to make an income and an impact with their music. Then once a month, we're gonna have our Music Mentor Spotlight Series. And that's where we're gonna bring on some of the world's biggest and best artist coaches and successful musicians to teach you what's working right now and one of the most amazing parts is that you can get your questions answered live by these top-level music mentors. So a lot of the people that you hear right here on the podcast are there live interacting with you personally. So imagine being able to connect with them directly. On top of all that, you'll get access to our private music mentor community. And this is definitely one of my favorite parts of Music Mentor and, and maybe the most valuable is that you're gonna have this, this community where you can network with other artists and link up, collaborate, ask questions, get support, and discuss everything related to your music career. So if you're curious and you wanna take advantage of the free trial, then go click on the link in the show notes right now and you can sign up for free. Uh, from there, you can check out all of the amazing content, uh, connect with the community, and sign up for the live masterclasses that happen every week. This is a gift for listening to our podcast, supporting the show. Um, so don't miss it out. Go sign up for free now and uh, let's get back to our interview. Mm. It's, a, it's a really interesting perspective. And I think it's, it's so true because it seems like no matter what you do, how successful you are, it's, it's not like achieving that success means that now you're going to live a problem-free life. Right? It's like, if anything, it's in some cases, like more problems come up, but they're just like higher level problems. And yeah, the way I've heard this described before is related specifically to money, because I think sometimes when it comes to money, people are like, oh man, if I had more money, like I'd have, you know, to deal with like, like more problems or different problems. And, and I, this one quote says something along the lines of, um, you know, whether you have money or not, you're going to have problems, but I prefer the problems that come from having money versus the ones that come from not having money. And to your point, there's, there's still problems, of course, like problems never go away. And if, if they did, then what, I mean, would we just live in some sort of like boring, like kind of like, all right, like it's, can you imagine watching a movie or it's just 
nothing happened because there was no problems. And it's like, John was happy and the end. <laughs> like, it's just always, he was always happy, right? Like, it seems like problems are sort of, you can't have a good story. You can't have movements or fulfillment without some sort of dissonance or um, discomfort or challenge or growth, you know, and problems are inherent in that. But there's different levels of problems and there's higher level problems. And the problems that we have now with the music industry come from this increased ability to have big, higher creative output therefore you're being able to stand out it's really interesting i really I, I love the point that you brought up too around the difference between it seems like in the past like you're saying the you could really hone your craft and hone your skill on stage with the, the feedback from a group of people whereas now you might maybe you could do something similar through live streams where you just perform over and over and over again to like like on a, a live show but developing that craft is you know kind of a, a different a different beast um, so what do you feel like? Oh yeah, go, go ahead. Well, uh, just to show you how different things are. Yeah. You got your 10,000 hours, generally speaking in front of an audience where you knew how to work an audience. And that's a skill in itself that you don't get from doing a live stream. It's not the same at all. And it's such a difference that there are many artists that have a hit have that have never played in front of an audience. And then when they do it, it's very difficult for them to learn. Now, just to show you, I have a very good friend who's a very successful record producer. And his daughter had a hit, and she never was on stage. So what he did is he hired all the best people to tutor her. So much so that when she went on stage, there was a person off stage that was telling her in her ear what she should say to the audience. Now, it turns out that this was so successful that all sorts of other celebrities would come to him and say, can you do this for my son or my daughter? And it turned into a business for him, actually, because wow. there's all these people that, you know, wanted that ability, but yeah, they could have gotten it if they just went out and played. But, you know, it's not that easy anymore. Mm. So that's a big cool difference. idea for a service, <laughs> like yeah. the personal, personal, uh, live performance coaching. Cool. Um, so it's, it's way easier in retrospect to kind of like look back and see what the waves were, see the trends cause they've already passed. And we're like, Oh yeah, like this, this happened. And, um, it seems like a really valuable skill, um, is learning how to look forward and kind of de decipher what are the upcoming waves, right? If we're all kind of like surfers, like what's, what's cresting right now? And like, how can we kind of catch that wave and get momentum from it? Um, what do you view, view as some of the potential movements or the waves that we can kind of feel right now that if someone was looking at the music industry, looking at their music career and they're thinking, yeah, how can I really kind of capitalize on this upcoming trend? Where do you see some of like the movement happening in the music industry right now? There's two of them. I think and people will call this web three, but I prefer to just call it, you know, virtual reality. I think web three is, um, it's something that's, that's looking for a, a reason to be, but really it's all about virtual reality, but virtual reality is real. It's been around for a long time. It will be a combination of virtual and artificial reality. And there are already some fantastic examples of this going on. Uh, right near me, not that far away. I'm in Burbank, California, and, and five miles away in Pasadena. I haven't been to this, but I have a friend that actually worked on it. There's a uh, an artificial reality. You go in and you become a stormtrooper in Star Wars. 
And this is brilliant because you put on a backpack, which is a computer, you put the head on, the, the helmet on, and the helmet actually contains, you know, the screen and everything. Mm. So then you go around and it says, uh, okay, pick up a weapon. And you go and they have what feels like a weapon. And then open up the door and then go into another room. And so, and then they have the audio that's immersive, that's complete with the uh, HRTF. So it's following you, your head and everything. And apparently this is so real that um, people are just freaking out about it. So th there are these things that are coming up. Now, the, the, the hard part that they figured out was the fact that you put a helmet on and there is a backpack with the computer. So that, that made it easy. That's brilliant. The rest of us won't have that ability, I don't think. But nonetheless, that's what's coming. And I'm going to tie that into immersive audio. Immersive audio is really impressive. And it is... Dolby Atmos primarily. Music is, is fantastic in, in that. Do I think it's going to catch on under certain, certain circumstances? I've lived through the surround sound period, through the 5.1 period. I, I did 120 mixes for all sorts of acts uh, during that for DVDs and <clears throat> SACDs and everything. And the biggest problem was always on the consumer side. And it was, okay, you got these five speakers you're going to put in your house, and they have to be here, here, and here. But then the wife or significant other comes in and says, wait, you can't put a speaker there. Or the speaker's next to a door or something like that. So the next thing you know, you have five speakers up against the front, and you don't have the experience at all. Mm. Well, we're overcoming that now because what we're getting is some fantastic sound bars that will shoot you know up into the air and you get it bounces all over the room it can sense the room can and knows exactly how to to work it they're uh wireless so one of the big complaints was always i don't want wires across the floor well you don't have to and you can get a pretty good experience with just a sound bar and a couple of, of surround speakers and a subwoofer so it doesn't cost that much either so we're going to see that coming to the home but i see it going another step Audio reproduction hasn't changed in 120 years. We're still using speakers. We're still moving air with, with cones, with paper cones. And other things have been tried, and nothing has been effective or efficient. We need a revolution, a new, something brand new, new technology. And it, in fact, is somewhat on the horizon. Now, I always thought that not only would immersive audio, but immersive music really take off when we don't have to think about speakers anymore, when the walls become our transducers, whether it be a, via paint or something else. But the walls would become transducers, so you walk into a room and it's already immersive. You never have to worry about the playback system, or at least that part of it. It's on the horizon not going to be here tomorrow or in five years even maybe but it's on the horizon so i look at that and i think that's really when all this is going to take off and if that takes off the way we make music is going to change as well the way we think about music we're not going to think of it in the same terms because we're, we won't listen to it in the same terms so that's what excites me about music and the future of music
there are other things, of course, but that that's the one thing. That, being a, a, a tech nerd, <laughs> you know, I nerd out on that. That's super cool. And I, I I love this conversation, and I don't think I've ever heard someone describe it um, like that, or, or kind of paint paint the vision with you know immersive audio, and that makes that makes a lot of sense in terms of just like the on the consumer side, the technology is finally there to make it easier to be able to to listen to this type of music, and and I, I know with you know, we have a couple of home pods that have kind of built in like. Adobe atmospheric sounds and it took a little bit of getting used to at first because I was like wait what what's like why did that come from over there um so I think you know obviously with like a new tool people are starting to figure out how to be able to use it and actually kind of implement it but um super super interesting and I'm right with you in terms of the virtual reality and kind of the movement towards um you know essentially a virtual environment that eventually you know, could be very similar to our experience right now. We're just like, I'm like sitting in a room or sitting wherever we are with headphones. But, you know, what if this was just all like, you know, virtually created? And especially if it was combined with, you know, brain interfaces or something like Neuralink from Elon Musk. And we could just think like, I want a uh, banana split. And it's like, bloop, <laughs> there's like a banana split in our virtual environment instantly. <laughs> it's, um, that's really really interesting, and the thing that you're describing the uh, the Star Wars uh, I, there's actually one of those in Orlando at the Disney World Star Wars uh, place, and, and I went and I did it, and it was exactly like you described a very cool virtual experience. The way that I've heard it described with virtual reality is that it's about tricking the brain um, and giving it a sense of presence. Like and like in presence was like one of the key terms around like our brain. You would think that we're smart enough or like we'd be aware that like, oh, no, like, you know, this is all fake or this is all virtual. But when you actually have the visuals along with the sounds, along with like the movements corresponding with like your hands, then it actually can trick our brains into having a a false sense of presence and actually feeling like we're somewhere else. So, yeah, we're just at the beginning of of that. But super interesting to think about that and how it could have ties in with um, with music as well. So do you think that with like virtual reality that the way that music is involved is around virtual concert spaces or what are some you know potential integrations do you think with virtual reality that are relevant to musicians i think that's going to be a, a peripheral part of it i don't know if it'll be the main thing like for instance uh live streaming everybody thought live streaming was the, the next coming of of music of of live music and as soon as the pandemic died down somewhat died down so did live streaming so that was not what everybody thought and i know that some virtual concerts have been really successful but i go back to a friend of mine who's my publishing champion actually and uh, he's a guitar player and a singer and even back in second life he used to tell me he would do virtual gigs at his virtual club and people would pay him. He would actually do a gig and he'd make like 50 bucks. Uh, it didn't last very long because Second Life didn't last very long, but it just goes to show you that it it has happened and it is happening and it will happen again. So yeah, that's where we're going. Are you up to date on the whole like meta, meta shift from Facebook and the idea of 
you know, these like uh, blockchain, like like NFT owned sort of like deliverables within these spaces? Or do you have any thoughts about that? Or is that maybe too far off a, on a tangent? No, no, I have lots of thoughts on it. And I have to say the whole blockchain chain thing, I wish people would stop using the term unless it's way, way down the list of, of provisions of, you know, what, uh, as a feature of what you're doing. There was a period of two years or three years where I would get proposals for um, startups and it would be blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. We're blockchain. That would be the major feature. And then the other thing was, this is the future of music. This is going to save the music business. And I scratch my head and go, yeah, really? How? Well, it'll allow everybody to charge what they want. Well, does that really work? <laughs> so there's, so again, blockchain is a technology. I wish people just look at it as a technology and, and leave it at that. Uh, as far as NFTs, I have a, a very um, cautious outlook on it. And the reason why right now, the majority of NFTs are done in probably not entirely legal way. I mean, we see this where people are, you know, issuing an NFT, minting an NFT, and they don't even own the, you know, the product to begin with. Or we see where someone doesn't have the total ownership. Oh yeah, I wrote this, but oh, by the way, the record company also, <laughs> they, control it, they control it and I haven't talked to them. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things like that where there's a lot of entities that have to sign off on it and most people don't understand that. Mm. So as a result, there's consumers that are buying into this and then finding that they don't really own anything and they can't do what they wanted to, which is, you know, flip it <laughs> maybe later. So th that's casting a pall on the whole NFT thing. Now there are certain sports especially has it good and I know you're tied into to that to, with the NBA, ML, uh, MLB, uh, NBA, NFL. They got that down pretty much. I have a friend, a really good friend as a matter of fact, that is doing this for colleges, for uh, NCAA colleges in association with Tim Tebow. And they, they have the Heisman Trophy, so they're doing Heisman, um, Heisman NFTs. And he talks about what's really interesting is not person with a Heisman. Okay, here's an NFT of this person with the Heisman. No, what it is would be the whole collection of people that were eligible for it. And as a collector, you'd want each of them. So it's the same thing with the football team. If you get a football team that wins the, the championship, well, it's not just the championship or it's not just the star. If you're a collector, you want all of them. Mm. So if you approach it from the standpoint of this is a collectible, mm. then it's it takes on a completely different outlook, I think, mm. than if it's just, oh, it's a cool thing, I want to own that, or, oh, maybe I can flip that and make more money. Mm. So it, it's a different mindset. Yeah. Absolutely. That's that's very similar to my outlook on NFTs right now in terms of, you know, obviously with with cryptocurrency and NFTs in general, there's so much hype and kind of like trendiness around them and, and so much also, I don't know, confusion or vagueness and a lot of times how people define them. It's like, it's kind of like a jungle, right? And you don't really know what's, what's what. And 
Um, I do think there's, like you mentioned, like NBA top shots and there's some um, organizations that are creating a marketplace around NFTs that I think are doing it really well. And, sort of, and the way that they're, that they're doing it, that we want to sort of emulate um, with Modern Musician is, you know, creating a, you know, a series of collectibles that um, the way that NBA Top Shot does it is they have, you know, with each of their different teams have different, it's almost like trading cards. It's like trading cards with different levels of rarity. And a lot of the value of it is around the ability to collect them and to showcase them. But I personally, I don't fully resonate with the idea of artists giving up their copyright or royalties for their music as like an NFT or like to give up ownership of their music so that that fans can like buy into it. And I know there's there's some significant kind of movements around that idea in and of itself. But the way I look at it is, you know, the Mona Lisa is worth something like $800 million. But the person who buys the Mona Lisa, they don't, they don't have like that copyright or like own like the artwork, like they just, they own the original authentic Mona Lisa that was created. And so I, I don't think, th- I think there's maybe like a conflation of, of thinking that you need to own like the copyright or royalties to it, which I'm not hundred percent sold on that being like the right, the right move for the music industry as a whole. Well, uh, you know, speaking of, of that, the, what's interesting as well, and, and another trend would be AI and how much AI is useful to the average artist, the average musician. Now, there's a lot of AI-produced music that's out there, strictly AI done. And there was just a ruling by the Copyright Board just recently that said you cannot copyright something that doesn't have a human interaction with it. Wow. So if it's AI-driven only, it cannot be copyrighted, even as an algorithm. That kind of changes things because this has been a debate that's been going on for a while. It's like, okay, AI is here, AI is doing, you know, some pretty amazing things. And is it going to replace people? Well, and to some degree, yes, it will it'll replace musicians, it'll replace, replace engineers, but not totally. So it's a good thing. I In the studio, I love AI-driven plugins because it makes everything go faster. Gee, if I don't have to spend an extra hour in the studio, I love it. <laughs> you know, why should I say no to that? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think seeing anything that we can replace with artificial intelligence at like a high level. I mean, there's some things that just does you know better than humans. Just we just can't compete with like you know mathematical like computation type of stuff. But but really like that frees up resources, right? It frees up time. It frees up energy that we can spend doing something unique to our ability to to have creative thoughts and creative impulse um super interesting i mean <laughs> we can we can definitely geek out more on like on artificial intelligence and ai and that that whole conversation are you have you heard of Neuralink by elon musk and oh, like sure. brain interfaces and that yeah um what's your what's your take on that i mean i know for most people when i have a conversation about brain interfaces they're like wait they're going to put what inside your brain? <laughs> like, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, what, what are your thoughts around that whole concept? I have no objections, personally. I, well, first of all, I, I think it would be best if it was used to help people that were disabled and needed that sort of extra help. Mm-hmm. And I think if that was the major focus, that would make me feel better, rather than just, okay, I'm going to implant this 
in my head in order to do what I do better. Now, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that either, but I think there's a need that's greater. And and if it would serve that, that would make me feel better. I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, but I you know I have no objections to it. I you know again anything that makes things better for you, easier to do, whatever, any advantages that you can get, you should take. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, and, and I think that to to your point, I think that I mean whether whether they want to or not, I think that the the only way for them to really develop this technology is by focusing first and foremost on the the use case of making sure that this device helps people who you know have lost access to limbs to be able to to have the ability to be free again which is really awesome and then from there you know i think there's big steps to happen that can kind of integrate um with our thoughts and some of the the idea behind um, the value of those devices, I, I find really fascinating around specifically around this idea of like the internet being this huge revolution in terms of the internet's like an ocean of information, right? The ocean is doubling every year and it's just so much information that literally we designed all these algorithms like Google to like to, to as much as possible to, to put all this entire ocean down into a single little straw that we can like drink this massive ocean from. And this straw is a genius straw. Like it's literally designed to like look at who we are and track everything about us and try to find out like what's the perfect amount of ocean to like put through the straw. But that still, it, it's just a little tiny straw because our the bandwidth of our brain just isn't nearly enough to absorb that amount of information that, that quickly. But you know, with brain interfaces, potentially, you know, maybe we could expand the straw and we'd be able to, you know, more effectively interface with the internet and with each other and potentially, you know, be able to communicate with each other on a more, um, like on the level of thought as opposed to the level of language. Cause we can't talk nearly as fast as we think, right? Like there's like this bandwidth issue. Um, so that I find like super fascinating and kind of the edge of, at that point, you know, like there, there's, I think part of the reason there's so many concerns is because of the, um, fear of losing our privacy, I guess our privacy and like, and our thoughts and ideas. It's one of the last things that we can kind of hold separate from everyone and everything else is like, we think, well, at least my thoughts, like no one can you know, see or hear my thoughts. Uh, so I think there's a lot of fear around this idea of being fully seen or losing that, that sense of separateness. Um, but I also view it as you know, sort of like this um, movement that's happening towards greater collective enlightenment and being more interconnected. Um, so super, super interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I have a, a cat that's sitting in my lap and purring very loudly. If uh, you hear that in the background, <laughs> the cat is probably secretly a AI robot that's coming to listen to our conversation. Be like, oh, they're not getting too close to us, right? <laughs> the cats are still planning to. Over- the robot cats are still planning on <laughs> ruling the world very soon. Um, kind of interesting too, thinking about the intersection between thought and um, musicians and the ability to create music in and of itself. You know, it, it seems like the most talented musicians or like the the ones who are at the top of their game, they literally have this ability to channel thoughts or creative energy and, it's, and they don't have to think about playing anymore it just kind of like comes through them and they're able to kind of to take this thought and turn it into actual music so if we could 
have an interface that more directly allows us to like kind of stream that through what if we could create like a symphony just you know like in real time with our thoughts it's kind of interesting yeah just let your imagination run wild and it works <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you create yeah and i guess that's kind of what it's like already right like you know it's like we all as musicians especially we're creators and we create with our thoughts and then we eventually we turn those thoughts into actual tangible stuff but it always starts out as the the thought and it takes time to you know turn it into real stuff well i mean if you want to geek out about it one of the ways that could help musicians would be if you ever have a great idea on something and you just can't you're somewhere where you can't write it down or sing it or whatever um a lot of times it's uh you're you're at home okay let me turn on the computer and oh now i have to do this oh, oh, oh i forgot what i was doing mm -hmm. or you have a dream at night and you think well i'll remember it in the morning and you never do so, so that could be very helpful in fact if that was a way that you can have some storage for those things mm. there we go all right bobby it's you and me we're gonna we're gonna make <laughs> we're gonna make this device <laughs> starting tomorrow yeah there we go <laughs> Guys, we're, we're calling it bike bobby and mike together <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not gonna be confusing at all <laughs> oh, um, i like it well, hey, Bobby, man, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, having this conversation, being able to kind of geek out about um, the really like the future of what's what's coming in virtual reality and brain interfaces, as well as just seeing like the, the history of, of where things have come and kind of are, are going with the music industry. Super interesting. So um, for anyone who's uh, listening or watching this who would like to check out your books or learn more about you or dive deeper, what would be the best place for them to go to learn more? Well, it's always best to start at my website because that goes everywhere else. So the podcast, the blogs, the uh, my courses, all that stuff, uh, books. So that's bobbyosinski.com. Awesome. Cool. And like like always, we'll put the link in the description for easy access. And yeah, man, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, you taking um, the wisdom, taking everything you learned through interviewing all those different mixing engineers and turning that into a book and turning that into more at this point more than 24 books you know kind of like all these multiple rewrites and whatnot it's really really uh great when you know when someone focuses on providing value and turns that into tangible like stuff that's gonna create ripple effects and serve people for many years to come so thanks for what you do and appreciate you coming on here to have a conversation thanks for having me michael it's really good as as well i hope we can have more conversations in the future hey it's michael here I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guests today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take the music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.